0: So most people have just about enough religion to make them miserable. (laughs) It's no historical secret that the animated evangelist, Billy Sunday, told it like it was. And the plain truth of it, those were his words, and the plain truth of it is that his words still ring true. As I survey the spiritual landscape of our society and even our organized churches, I have to conclude that Billy Sunday was right on track. Okay, most people do have just enough religion to make them miserable, but not enough faith to make them saved. In his book, Second Wind for the Second Half, Patrick Morley shares an insight from his personal life that sets the stage for where we're gonna, what we're going to talk about today. Patrick writes these words. He says, one day my son asked if I would pay uh, to paint a basketball key and a three-point line in our driveway. And since he had been so diligent to practice, I agreed to do it. I was mildly surprised, however, when the company we hired sent three men for this relatively simple task. After showing them what we had in mind, John and I retreated inside the house, and about 20 minutes later, I glanced out the window. All three men were huddled under the basket, and they were not looking very productive to me. Curious, I went outside and I said, hey, what's up? Is there some kind of problem? No problem at all, said the crew chief. Then what are you doing? Why is it taking so long for you to get started? Oh, he said, and he showed me how they had hung a plumb line with a weighted bob from the end of the basketball hoop. And he continued, quote, we are checking and we're cross-checking and we're rechecking all of our measurements to make sure we have the right starting point. We've learned from experience, he says, that unless you have the right starting point, everything else will turn out wrong, unquote. Let me begin this morning by asking a very relevant and very personal question. Is there anything that could be more important in your life from this day forward, than making sure you have the right starting point. Because that's a profound message. And that is true on so many levels, but none more important than the status of your souls and my soul. Unless you have the right starting point, everything else is going to turn out wrong. So what is your starting point? Is it God and your relationship to him through Jesus Christ, his son? Is he your plumb line by which everything else in your life is measured? Well, the problem is we live in a day in which many people have just enough religion to deceive themselves into thinking that they have all that they need. That was my lot before I came to Christ. We live in a a society in which God talk runs very high, but God walk runs very low. Someone has suggested that the reason is because we have tended to seek the God we want rather than the God who is. In his book, God in the Wasteland, David Wells wrote these words. He says, it is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. Think about that. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. Unquote. Now our culture has developed an anorexic view of God, wouldn't you say? Do You know why? I'll tell you why. Because we have embraced a small view of God because we have enthroned a high view of man. And consequently, that view has produced a generation of professing Christians who may be orthodox in their belief, but secular in their behavior. I once read these words. Danish philosopher and writer Soren Kierkegaard selected as his life's work, now get this, the difficult task of teaching Christianity to people convinced that they were already Christians. That was his life's work. When Kierkegaard would ask his fellow Danes about how to live, they all had the same answer. We are Christians. Yet he found that these people were people who often had never once entered a church gathering, never thought about God in their daily lives, and never mentioned his name except in oaths. Are all of them Christians who call themselves Christians, he asked. He saw little resemblance between these comfortable middle-class people and the apostles and the martyrs. Wow. That's a heavy thought. Another author wrote, perhaps we have the same problem today. And he quoted a U.S. News & World Report some years ago, a survey that once found 88% of American adults are certain they are going to heaven. 88%. Ironically, in that same survey, only 67% were actually certain there was a heaven. Sooner or later, we must address Kierkegaard's question, are all these people who call themselves Christians, Christians? And that's a very relevant question to every single one of us individually today, isn't it? One of the difficulties is that no one wants to pinpoint the truth on the subject for fear of being labeled as a judge, and I certainly don't want to be labeled as a judge, and I'm not taking the standpoint of a judge. I'm just going to present to you what the Word of God says here this morning. How can we who are imperfect ourselves make a judgment on such things? We cannot. The answer is that we don't make the judgment. We're not the ones who set the plumb line, are we? God set the plumb line. As the prophet Amos recorded almost 2,700 years ago, Amos chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, then he showed me another vision. I saw the Lord standing beside a wall that had been built using a plumb line. He was checking it with a plumb line to see if it was straight. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? I answered, a plumb line. And the Lord replied, I will test my people with this plumb line. I will no longer ignore their sins. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. And you and I are either building on the right foundation or we're not. You've either picked the right starting point or you have not. And today's text draws a very clear distinction between those who have and those who have not. I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 8, if you're not there already, and follow along with me as I read the first 11 verses. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yay! Yay! but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, So let's just end right there. In this text, the Holy Spirit has set the plumb line. He's drawing a line of demarcation which begs a very significant question. Which category are you in? Which category are you in? Paul is not describing the contrast between two types of Christians here, one worldly and the other spiritual. He's comparing two entirely different categories of people. Those who live under the domination of the mindset on their selfish worldly desires and those whose minds are possessed by the Holy Spirit. Two categories. The contrasts drawn here are between those who are in relationship to Christ and those who are not in relationship to Christ. And the contrasts here are absolutely huge ginormous, I guess, is the word, right? And here it is, dead or alive. That's it. You're either one or the other, spiritually speaking. There are really only two kinds of people in the world today, those who are dead spiritually and those who are alive spiritually. Some would say saved or unsaved. You can use whatever terminology you want there. Those who belong to Christ and those who are under the power of the evil one. And by the way, some know it. Others are simply deceived into thinking that they are in control of themselves. And yet 1 John 5 indicates otherwise. 1 John 5 says that we are, the whole world is under the control and the power of who? The evil one. Matter of fact, here's the verses. Look at, look at the dichotomy here. Look at the two categories here. 1 John chapter 5, verses 10 through 13, and then 18 through 20. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. John, No gray area here with John, is there? And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. The one who has the son has the life. The one who does not have the son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Verse 18, we know that no one who has been born of God continually sins as a habit of life, but he who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. Watch this now. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Can't get much clearer than that, can you? Jesus has categorized people not according to sex, not according to culture, not according to race, not according to class or education, denomination or political party. He has categorized people by relationship relationship to him you either are in one or you're not in one you either have one or you don't have one there is no middle ground you are either someone who has the Spirit of God living in you or someone who does not you're either dead spiritually or alive that's exactly what it says in Luke 15 in the prodigal son parable, right? When the prodigal son returned home, what did the father say? Why did they celebrate? Because my son who was dead has come back to life. He's alive now. Spiritually. In fact, I would say that this text exhibits what I call spiritual polarity. Spiritual polarity. The dictionary defines polarity as, quote, the possession or manifestation of two opposing attributes, tendencies or principles, unquote. To polarize is to break up into opposing factions or groupings. Sounds just like what COVID-19 has done. Polarized people. That's what the word means. And that's exactly what Paul has done here in this text in Romans 8. Taking off from what he said in verse 4, he begins to describe the character of those who walk according to the flesh as opposed to those who walk according to the spirit. Let's look at this a little bit closer. Here's the first thing that Paul kind of outlines here. There's a polarizing contrast, he says, in verses 5 through 7. Look at verse 5 to begin with. I'm going to read it to you from the New Living Translation. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. Okay? We've got a polarizing contrast here. The difference between these two categories of people is absolute, Paul says. There, there are those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. The word Paul chose to use here implies this as a continuing pattern of life. It's not that your thoughts go fleeting to some worldly thing and then it bounces back to God. No, this is a continual habit of life. You're stuck in the world system. All you think about is the world stuff. The word Paul chose to use is very clear. It's to set one's mind on, refers to the direction of the life and the affections and the desires. Basically, a reason comes from that. It is a deliberate and willful bent towards something, is what Paul's referring to. What's your bent? What's your default? In other words, the person Paul's referring to here is the person who walks according to his flesh, has a mind centered on the things that will satisfy him or her. He or she is dominated by their human nature. His focus or her focus is entirely upon themselves. Their only law of life is, will it gratify me? If so, then let's do it. On the other hand, Paul says that those who are controlled by the Spirit, those whose desire and disposition since they've come to Christ is to follow him, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. It's their new bent. It's their new default. Now, if you are a Christian, what does the Scripture say about you? If any man be in Christ, he is what? You are a new creature. If you're a Christian, you're a new creature. The old nature has been replaced with a new one. The direction of your life is different than it once was. Does that mean we don't have selfish desires anymore? Does that mean that we always do the things that we do with the Lord's purposes in mind? Not hardly. But in light of his or her many failures, a true Christian or Christ follower is oriented toward the things of the Spirit. When they find themselves outside of God's spiritual direction, they have conviction come upon them and they hopefully will turn and repent and get back on the track. Amen? George Schultz, Secretary of State, during the Reagan administration, kept a large globe in his office, a big, huge globe in his office. And when newly appointed ambassadors had an interview with him, and when ambassadors returning from their posts for their first visit with him were leaving his office, Schultz would test them. And this is what he would say. He'd say, you have to go over to the globe and prove to me that you can identify your country. Okay. So inevitably, unerringly, they would go over to the globe in the corner and they would put their finger on the country to which they were being sent. And when Schultz's old friend and former Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfield was appointed as an ambassador to Japan, even he was put to the test. This time, however, Ambassador Mansfield spun that globe and he put his hand on the United States. And he said, that's my country. On June 27th, in 1993, Schultz related this on C-SPAN's book notes, and he said, I've told that story subsequently to all the ambassadors going out. Never forget that you're over there in that country, but your country is the United States. You're there to represent us. Take care of our interests and never forget it, and you're representing the best country in the world. Unquote. That's what he would tell them. My brothers and sisters in Christ, this is so important right now. Absolutely critical in our mindsets. As a Christian, our home country is not this world. It's not even the United States. It's heaven. Please don't forget that. Because your mindset will determine your behavior. Your mindset will determine your direction. Your true belief will inform your actions. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 4 says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's the truth of the matter. Friends, what is it that you constantly talk about? What is it that you are most deeply interested in? What is your first thought when you wake up in the morning? Is it how you will please God or how you will gratify God? yourself or myself. What is the first thing you think of when you have to make a major decision? Is it what does God desire in this situation or is it what do I want out of this situation? And be honest with your assessment. Sometimes those two things line up. Hopefully, if you're in the spirit, they will, right? Because you should want what God wants. But is the general tendency and bent of our life directed by the dictates and desires of our human nature or by the love of God, flesh or spirit, dead or alive? It's polarizing contrast, Paul sets up here. That's the polarizing contrast that he's drawing. But the distinctive characteristics of this contrast are even more revealing if you look. Verse six, it's a contrast between life and death. Look at verse six, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Notice that, life and peace. I mean, William Barclay put it this way, quote, to allow the things of the world to completely dominate life is self-extinction. It is spiritual suicide, unquote. However, notice that Paul doesn't say that the mindset on the flesh leads to death. What does he say? He says it is death. Death is the reality of the spiritual equation not the consequence notice that without Christ the person is is spiritually dead even though they may be physically alive the bible is pretty clear on that in ephesians chapter 2 ephesians chapter 2 first 6 verses right out of the chute here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Notice the, the different characterizations that Paul uses. Those that are in the flesh that are not of God, they're called sons of disobedience. People that are Followers of Christ, they're called saints, right? Sons and daughters of God. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Notice that, children of wrath, even as the rest, but God being rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where are we citizens? We're seated with Christ in heavenly places, spiritually speaking, right? Right? Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ and he forgave all of your sins. Now, before receiving Christ, a person is dead toward God. He may be the most moral person or man that you've ever met or she may be the most religious person you've ever known. But let me tell you this, what the Bible says very clearly is, but without a personal relationship to Jesus Christ through faith, neither one of those people has an ounce of spiritual life in them. I'm sorry, but that's the truth of the matter. That's what the Bible says. They need the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, it says right here in Romans chapter 8, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. They need what Jesus offers. Now that opens up our understanding of why the people we encounter in the world can say and do the the harmful and the hurtful things that they do because the mindset on the flesh really doesn't have any other choice, does it? Because it doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. It's just operating according to an unregenerate nature. That's exactly why we can never expect the world to live up to Christ's standards. They never will be able to do it because they don't possess the power to do it if they don't have the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't stumble on some righteous behavior. But they don't understand that it's Christ's behavior. First of all, and secondly, they have no power to fulfill those things. So the next time you wonder why your unsaved friend or relative does the unthinkable thing, think it through. What in the world do you expect? Verse 7 it says, the mindset of the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. It can't. It doesn't understand it. And that word there is a military term here um, that Paul uses when he says, for it does not subject itself. It's a military term meaning to line up under, to be subject to. The unbeliever has absolutely no way, no power totally unable to obey the commands of Christ in and of themselves. That's why the world needs Christ. A Christian, however, is another story. A genuine Christian who has been born from above, according to John chapter 3, should operate according to a new life source, that's Christ's life. The difficulty comes when a person claims to be a Christian and yet follows a pattern of life that is completely opposite of what Christ embraces. That's where it gets a little bit crazy, isn't it? You cannot be a Christ follower, one who is at peace with God and be living a life that is continually at odds with him and his truth. You can't. You can't. Friends, let me say this and please try to hear what I'm saying. It comes from a heart of, that is very cognizant of my own shortcomings and sin in my own life and fully frustrated with it, as Paul was in Romans 7. But one that also realizes that we collectively as a church and as a nation have become soft on sin. Now, I say collectively as a church, not just referring to an individual local church. I'm talking about the church at large. Okay? It's time to stop soft-pedaling the truth of these scriptures, which makes very clear distinctions. As a nation, we, this goes without saying, doesn't it? As a nation, we are in deep muck. And it's not just out there. It's in the professing church as well. The truth is, it takes more than carrying a Bible and going to church to identify someone with Christ. It takes a mind that is no longer set on the flesh, but on the spirit. It takes a mind that is no longer hostile toward God, but is at peace with God and his truth. It takes a will that is submitted to the law of God and a life whose actions and words are pleasing to him. And sadly, it's not just our nation's leaders or our neighbors out there who need to understand these truths. We all need to understand them and apply them. And so Paul draws these contrasts that are impossible to argue with. They're absolutely polarizing The contrast between a person who walks according to the flesh and one who walks according to the spirit is a contrast between life and death. And it's a contrast between hostility and peace. Verses six and seven. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Some time ago I read about a middle-aged man who lost his job as the anchor for the local six o'clock news in his city. And shattered, he turned to his female co-anchor, who had quietly modeled God's love and care to him throughout that the, the man's career there. And in the darkest moment of his life, he surrendered his life to God. Later, that man said, This was his words. I never rejected God. I just never embraced him. Now I praise God that this man finally embraced his Lord and Savior. But the biblical facts are that before you and I came to Christ, it wasn't simply a matter of not embracing him. The scripture makes it clear that we were actually hostile toward him. We might not have known it, but we were. It says it right here. The mindset on the flesh, which of course ours were before coming to Christ, is blatantly hostile toward God. You may not have thought so. I would have argued vehemently against it. In fact, I did before I came to Christ. But according to the Scriptures, It was, my heart was hostile to God. And I was deeply embedded in a a religion. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 22 says this, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds... Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. You see the seriousness of of what we were before we came to Christ? Hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds? That's strong language, isn't it? Note the total change there in in those verses. We were once alienated, but now we're reconciled. We were once hostile, but now we're holy. We were once engaged in evil, but now we're above reproach. Those who are in the flesh are literally at war with God, alienated at odds with him. Jesus said, he who was not with me, is against me, in Matthew 12, 30. So it shouldn't surprise us that the media has a field day when a Christian vice president takes a biblical stand against a sinful lifestyle. And they have a field day with that. It shouldn't surprise us that certain celebrities, which will remain unnamed, completely lose control on television and viciously berate those who hold conservative values, whipping in the applauding audience into a hateful frenzy. It shouldn't surprise us that we are moving from a post Christian era to an atmosphere which is decidedly anti Christian. Isaiah chapter 57, verses 20 and 21 says, but those who still reject me are like the restless sea. It's never still, but continually churns up mire and dirt. There is no peace for the wicked, says God. Says my God. Hatred, enmities, and hostilities are the common character traits of those who operate without Christ, those who function according to the flesh. Those who trust Christ, on the other hand, have peace with God, according to Romans 5, verse 1. listen to the way the New Living Translation renders these two verses, 6 and 7. If your sinful nature controls your mind, there is death, But if the Holy Spirit controls your mind, there is life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. Paul goes beyond drawing this polarizing contrast to making a paralyzing claim in verse 8. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The well-respected preacher Joseph Parker identified this sentence as, as one marked by a striking tone of finality. There is a tone of finality right there in that verse, isn't there? There's an acute sense of finality. Even an unbeliever who has a model and exemplary life cannot do anything to win the approval of God is what that verse is saying. Because even good deeds, when they are not embodied by the Spirit of God, are ultimately self-motivated and self-centered. All of it falls short of the glory of God. Does that mean that an unsaved person can never do anything good and that a believer can never do anything bad? Of course not. But no matter what good thing a non-believer may do, it originates now. Think about this very carefully. It originates from a mindset that is unregenerate. It's in an unregenerate state. It is one that Paul says is hostile toward God. You and I were created for one ultimate purpose, to please God and to bring him glory. What is the chief end of man? says the Westminster Confession, Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. You see, note the words acceptable and mind. Outward transformation depends upon inward renewal. And is that where your mind is constantly set? Is that where my mind is consistently set? Because that's what Paul's advocating for here. In contrast, the contrast Paul draws in verses five to seven is polarizing. The claim that he makes in verse eight is paralyzing. But here in verses nine through 11, the comfort that he gives is purifying. Look at that. Verses nine through 11. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Verse 9, as it begins... I want you to translate the word if there as the word since. In my version, New American Standard, it goes like this. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, since indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Okay? That's what Paul, that's what Paul's joy is. That the people that he's writing to have the Spirit of Christ. And since you do, then you belong to him. Again, he draws another distinct dividing line here. You are in the Spirit since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Okay? But if you don't have the Spirit, you're sunk. That's what he says. There's no vacillation on the issue. Jesus clarified this to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, didn't he? John chapter 3, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Contrast. The evidence of your conversion is the presence of the Spirit of God in your life. This is the watershed between those who are Christ's and those who are not. And I like the way the New Living Translation renders that verse, but you're not controlled by your sinful nature. You're controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. Okay? And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them are not Christians at all. Here is what Paul is saying. You must, there must be a relationship. That's the first part of verse 9. And beyond the relationship, there's ownership. That's the second part of verse 9. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Or better yet, does he have you? Does he have me? Notice the fact that the Trinity is named here. <laughs> we see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all through this text. Well, what Paul is getting at is is, is what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Christ Jesus is in you unless you fail the test? Donald Gray Barnhouse said that the most important thing to know about your salvation is not the date that it happened, but the certainty that it has happened. Do you know that you are alive in Christ? Are you certain that the Spirit dwells in you? How can you tell? How can you tell? Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's how your security, your comfort lies in the fact that you have the Holy Spirit living in you. You might be saying, but does that mean if I sin, that's proof that the Holy Spirit is not in me? Listen, there's a huge difference between a man being in the flesh and the flesh being in the man, okay? Huge difference. Inside every Christian, this battle rages, doesn't it? Every Christian's gonna struggle with the sinful nature. You say, I thought when we received Christ, that old man died, Well, in essence, yes. But death is not extinction. Death is separation. At salvation, Christ separated us from the ruling power of that sin nature. We no longer have to obey that anymore because now we have a power, the Holy Spirit living in us, that gives us the strength to deny it, to not give in to it. But that sin nature still wants to control us, doesn't it? Galatians chapter five, verses 16 and 17 says, what I say is this, let the spirit direct your lives and you will not satisfy the desires of the human nature. For what our human nature wants is opposed to what the spirit wants. And what the spirit wants is opposed to what our human nature wants. These two are enemies and this means that you cannot do what you want to do. See, That sin nature doesn't have to control you or me. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Look, I don't know where you may be today. You may be at a point where you don't feel the presence of the spirit anymore. You may be stuck in a spiritual desert. Every Christian experiences that at one time or another in their life. Moments of dryness which seem very devoid of the Spirit's watering presence. Times when it's difficult to follow or feel Jesus' comfort. Times when you wonder if it's worth the fight. You ever have those times? It's indeed worth it. Jesus actually experienced the same thing in the Garden of Gethsemane, didn't he? Look at verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's the hope. That's the purifying hope. Just as the spirit who lifted Christ from physical death and gave resurrected life to his mortal body He not only renews us to new life now, but also secures it in eternity. Amen? William Barclay once said that the spirit-controlled life, the Christ-centered life, the God-focused life is daily coming nearer heaven even when it is still on earth. It's a life which is such steady progress toward God that the final transition of death is only a natural and inevitable stage on the way. I remember listening to Dallas Willard talk about, at the end of his life, talking about in the, living in the presence of Christ. And I love this thought. And you gotta hear him in his voice and his, as he gets choked up talking about it because he, was, he died very shortly after that he recorded this. But he talked about the fact that you need to get to the place where you live so close to Christ, that you walk so closely with Christ, that when you die, somebody's going to have to tell you that you're dead. (laughs) Because there'll be no break in that fellowship with you in Christ. Isn't that a great thought? Don't you want to have that kind of relationship with Jesus? I do. I'm not there yet. But it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's like Enoch who walked with God and God took him. Child once interpreted that verse this way. Enoch was a man who went on walks with God and one day he didn't come back. Kind of the same idea, isn't it? Beautiful thought. And that's the destiny of those who do not live their lives according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. At the end of my life, I would love to have that said about me, wouldn't you? Will it one day be said about me and you? You fill your name in the blank, right? So-and-so was a man or a woman who went on walks with God and he one day didn't come back. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious and gracious thought that actually we're just walking with you and one day we realize that we're not even on this earth anymore, we're walking in heaven. Father, I pray that our relationship with you would grow to such an extent that that would be true. That we would know you so well and you would know us so well. It would be free and easy communication and a life lived with such a glorious, glorious joy and presence, living life in the presence of Christ. And for those that may be within earshot of this message that you may not even know what I'm talking about, or you may desire it so bad and you realize right now because of the words that we've been under today that you don't have it and you want it, the scripture says it's very easy to get it, All you need to do is recognize first that you need Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, that you would by faith bow your heart and accept him as your Lord and Savior, and receive him into your life, to repent of your sin and ask him to lead you from this day forward. And all it takes is one prayer. Lord, I need you. I need you, Lord. I need you. Come into my life, forgive my sin. Secure my destination in eternity with you. I pray, Father, that there would be no one that would refuse that offer. It's a free gift. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Father, for this. And as we leave this place today, Lord God, may we have that message so ingrained upon us and we love it so much that we need to share it with others and offer them that same thing that we know that we have. For Jesus' sake and in his name I ask it, amen.